this afternoon we have um, three papers. Michael Mossbacker will be presiding. Uh, I think we'd like to begin, actually, by returning to the question that Marilyn Fedak asked um, at the end of the last session. As I said uh, to her, it was really Lenin's question, what is to be done? I'm not sure we'll have the definitive answer now, but uh, perhaps there'll be some, uh, some ideas either from the panelists uh, and or from, uh, from you, the, the audience. Michael, uh, excuse me, uh, Roger, may I say mm -hmm. something about that? Well, I happen to agree with uh, the argument that has been made by, uh, by Mark Stein and by David. And it certainly creates a, something, something of a lugubrious mood talking about the future of the American society or Western civilization. I'm not sure that there is a comparison between Europe and the United States because we are a far more complicated, the United States is a far more complicated entity than Europe. Uh, several years ago when I was working on a book on popular culture in the United States, I noted that if you dialed uh, information in California, you dialed popcorn, and if you dialed it in New York, you dialed uptight. Uh, merely to suggest that this is a far more complicated nation and that there are many positive things that are occurring. And so when we try to create the sense that the character of the United States has been affected adversely, there's an element of truth to it, but it's also an element of truth, as Charles has pointed out, that there are a great many Americans who have spine and determination, and I have had the opportunity to speak at a number of these tea parties, one in South Dakota, one in Iowa, the heart of the heartland, and you find that there are Americans who are willing to take out their pitchforks and start the second American Revolution. So I think it's very difficult to generalize about what is happening in the United States. There is an opportunity, I think, at this moment to take advantage of the, what I would uh, describe as the remorse the, uh, uh, that uh, many people have in having voted for Obama. I think we can take advantage of that. There is an opportunity for change. And the question is change in a very different kind of direction. Maybe the, the, uh, the, re the, the reclamation of liberty, the retention of the traditional values and, and principles of this nation. So I'm not entirely without hope for the future. One of the things that's true about the United States is that in this nation, miracles really do occur. And I'll just leave, make one final point, if I may. It's a story that I love to tell, and I, I may have mentioned it to some people in this audience, but I, I'd like to mention it yet again. It's a story about a man named Fa Fast Eddie. Fast Eddie was the lawyer for the Capone gang in the 1920s and 30s. And Fast Eddie was a remarkable man who would always find a technicality that would get one of the Capone crowd off a crime. And he was, uh, he was a notorious figure, ended up as being one of the wealthiest people in Chicago, in fact had an enormous estate. On one day when he was feeling a guilty conscience and there was the, uh, the, the belief that he might go to the district attorney, he was filled with 16 bullets on his front step, probably killed by the Capone gang, but the assailant was never found. The second part of the story involves a young man named, uh, named Butch uh, O'Hare, who was a fighter pilot in World War II and he left on a mission and he was about to, uh, to engage in an attack on a Japanese aircraft carrier and found he had insufficient fuel in his airplane and had to return to the aircraft carrier. He went back to the aircraft, he was on his way back to the aircraft carrier, he saw several Japanese Zeros and started to fire at them even though he was running out of fuel. He fired at them and when, when he ran out of ammunition he ran his plane right into several Japanese planes taking three of them out by taking off their tail and their wings and, and the, the wings and, as well as the tail. He got back to his aircraft carrier and a year later he was killed in a mission in 1943 and became among the most decorated naval fire pilots in American history. In fact, the airport in Chicago 
O'Hare Airport is named after Butch O'Hare. But what is not known and is not mentioned in the plaque at the O'Hare Airport is that his father was Fast Eddie. So one of the great things about American life is that from one generation to another, you really do not know what will happen. And I, that's one of the reasons why I believe that miracles are indeed possible. And as one of the great philosophers of our time once said, it was Fat Swaller, one never knows, do one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yep, uh, thank, thanks for that. Uh, do we have any more questions or comments relating to Mark Stein's paper? Uh, if not, we'll move on to Jeremy Black on the, the state and the threat to democracy. Jeremy. Thank you. Uh, as starting off from the speakers from Britain, can I start off by saying how uh, pleased I am on all, our behalf to be here, uh, to thank Roger and the new Criterion for providing a lot of inspiration for thinking on the other side of the Atlantic, and to say how, in a way, very flattering it is, given that America is the great power still, whatever its problems, and Britain is, I'm afraid, not doing terribly well, how very flattering it is that you are actually interested enough to listen to some things we have to say. So it is very flattering, and how personally pleased I am to be here. Um, I, I wonder if I could also return the compliment slightly by talking a bit about, before I give my written comments, a bit about early American history, because the past never repeats itself, but there are issues from the past that are worth thinking about, n not only to look at parallels, but also to look at differences. Now, clearly, we can easily think of differences. The nature of American society in the late 18th and early 19th century was very different to today. But we had uh, quoted to us, quite appropriately, Madison in the Federalist Papers, and that reminds us that many of the issues that we are talking about today, obviously not Islam, but in a sense to Americans of the 1790s, the threat from Jacobins was seemed just as much a threat. Um, but many of the issues from the, from the 1790s and 1800s are ones that are very resonant to today. Because, of course, America was involved in a bitter debate in that period about the nature of power, about the size of the state, about the relationship between the state and the rights of the individual, and about how best to deal with dissidents and sedition. In fact, the Sedition Act was one of the major pieces of legislation that, of course, is very controversial of the 1790s. And one of the points that worries me slightly <coughs> is that we often lose sight of the past when we're thinking about the present, uh, because some of these points are very relevant. Now, the particular point that I think is most relevant of all is to look at the logic of the Federalists, because those are, as it were, the people who we are criticising the modern descendants of, or in a way, the modern descendants of. And the point about the Federalists, who, of course, just to remind you, the Federalists are very much against the Jeffersonian agrarian Democrats, and the agrarian Democrats have this notion, Jefferson is convinced that America will never be an industrial or urban society, that the towns will always be relatively small, and Jefferson is convinced that the best future for America is, for, is to have you know, a self-reliant uh, rural uh, people, uh, farmers looking after their own, uh, their own uh, farms and, you know, joining together to advance liberty. And the Federalists argue that whether or not this is uh, what is going to happen, it won't work on the world scale. And the one thing I noticed this morning is that the world scale was not rather pushed to the front. I mean, the international dimension was there largely to talk about what is indeed a very important threat, which is the existential threat from radical Islam, or indeed from Islam as a whole, as Andy pointed out. And I think that's entirely appropriate. But, of course, it in no way defines the whole nature of the external situation. 
And indeed, you could easily sit down. I can tell you there are strategists in your government who do sit down. And having recently read the strategic trends document for the Ministry of Defence, I can tell you there are strategists in my government who sit down and consider the world and the nature of the most potent threats, potential threats to the West, and their chief identity, their chief uh, um, is, shall we say, located more in East Asia than it is located in the Middle East. I don't think I have to go much further than that, though I'm quite happy to go further than that if pressed. Now, um, if you go back to the Federalists, the Federalists argued that America needed a stronger government, and by a stronger government they were thinking in particular of a national bank, they were thinking of a of a seagoing navy, which, of course, Jefferson was totally opposed. All Jefferson wanted was a gunboat equivalent for local militia defence. And why were the Federalists thinking this? The Federalists were thinking this because they took the view that the revolution was incomplete, that America had not been saved by defeating the evil Brits, because either the Brits would be back... Or if the Brits wouldn't be back, one has the problem that both the French and the Spaniards were ambitious and aggressive as well. So in other words, strong government was necessary not because strong government was a good thing. That was not the Federalist argument. And to that extent, they are different from the modern socialists like Mr Obama. They are not arguing that, uh, that strong government is a good thing. They were arguing that strong government was necessary that to use the jargon of IR specialists, America was in a realist world, and this realist world was one defined by great power confrontation, and that the Americans needed a strong state to get out of it. Of course, the Jeffersonians won, and one of the consequences of the Jeffersonians won is that the evil Brits were burning down the White House in 1814. Uh, that, in a sense, America on its own could not protect itself. If you are... If you were an Amer Does anybody know this question time? Would anybody like to tell me what was the major thing taught at West Point in the 1820s, 30s, 40s and 50s? Anybody know? Engineering. Engineering. Fortress engineering and architecture. And why was that? Because American planners, American leaders knew that the real danger was a threat to America. If you'd gone to the southern end of Manhattan Island in the 1820s and 30s and 40s, if you go to this day to the southern end of the Golden Gate Bridge and look at what is under the, underneath the southern access road, you will see a fort. That fort is there to protect you, big government, protecting you against the evil Brits and anybody else that might come. Um, now, of course... After, 18, after the decade 1861 to 1871, the other world powers gave up on North America in the sense that the, French, the Americans successfully intimidated the French out of Mexico, the British pulled their garrisons out of Canada with the exception of the Halifax and Esquimalt garrisons in 1871, and the Russians sold up, and everybody accepted that America, as it were, has been settled as a geopolitical question. And from 1871 through to the 1940s, you can have the luxury of marvellous state of affairs, a small government, which is what America essentially had in that period, a small government, and still take a role that satisfied your international issues. You know, America was able to expand its influence across the Pacific. It was able to fight <coughs> Spain successfully in 18, 1898, what Harvey Sickerman calls cheap hawkery, uh, and it was able to do that and still keep government small. 
Since 1940, that has not been the case. The two, na the two navies, the two oceans naval act of 1940, that has not been the case. America has developed strong government, not as the present government is trying to do, as Mr. Obama is trying to do, essentially for issues of fiscal redistribution and his notion of social welfare, but essentially so that America can act as a great power in the world in order to advance issues, interests, and a view of the world that is seen crucial as in the, as in, as in the American identity. And in doing so, America has helped save the world, both from the, you know, the combination of, of Germany and Japan, and then again from the Cold War. But big government was part of the answer. So to sit down now and say we don't want big government... It's partly a wrong way of looking at it. What we should be saying is, is big government being used for purposes at the present moment that are completely inappropriate, which I think is what emerged from this morning. I agree entirely that the social agenda is very threatening and indeed is one which is, in a sense, part pushing it is in part of a government that is failing to defend America's interests internationally. I think there is a relationship there. But as I said, I will just underline that point before going on to what I've written before. I do think one has to be aware that big government itself is not necessarily the problem. You cannot operate in the international world without that strength. You know, free and collective individuals might, as David has this idea, go and fight people in the streets of London, but you cannot use that to run an aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean. You know, if you want to act as a great power, if you want to do that, you need a governmental support for military means. And I think that's quite important. It does mean we have to think very carefully about how we want that government to be constructed. And given that the world is generally assumed by strategists to becoming more threatening for the United States, given that most strategists assume that America will remain the largest power, but within a world in which America's ability to achieve its goals are more constrained, then thoughtful understanding of what you can achieve with government is going to become more important. And that, I would say, is one of the major criticisms of the Obama ministry, that they are devoting so much of their attention to these, these socialistic policies internally that they are not devoting sufficient attention to what can be achieved on the world scale. I think that's a very important critique of the, of the Obama ministry. And in a way, I would like to see that debate brought more to the fore in the American discussion, because I think this is important. Last point here... Um, the relationship between um, liberty, freedom and governance is not one that is only recently exercised political thinkers. Much that we've been talking about this morning has, of course, recurrent themes. And in some cases, we're arguing at cross-purposes. Let me give you an example. I so happen to agree with the speakers that the rise of Islam in Britain and in elsewhere in Europe is an enormous threat. I see it as an existentialist threat. Um, to me, one of the most disastrous proposals was those of our, uh, our late, our, our last, and in my view, very noxious Prime Minister, Mr Blair, who you generally like because he took the same view that you wanted in the Middle East. Fine. But Mr Blair's internal policies included embracing the idea of faith schools for the Muslims. In other words, providing separate education for Muslims because he saw this as a way to cheer up the Muslim communities and to wind them over. I so happen to think that's disastrous. I so happen to think that the French policy, which is one of a much stronger state, saying, no, you can't do this, 
much harder to have. There are some faith schools in France, but it is much harder to have faith schools in France. So I would argue that in some cases, and I'll take up this point, as Tim said earlier, if you want to control a potentially radical, violent and disturbing domestic force, you actually need stronger government, not weaker government. You actually need to go back in the American context to look at why the legislation was passed in the 1790s against sedition. You need to look at what was done after World War I and World War II to try and deal with communist subversion. You need to realise that sometimes you do need a stronger state to deal with people who are not willing to accept the constraints and disciplines of a democratic society and in fact actively and aggressively wish to overthrow it, which is the problem we're dealing with in Islam. So I think these are important points. Strong government itself can be, at times, the answer as much as the problem. It is too easy to just write it off as the problem. And we need to have a robust attitude in which we fight against strong government when it is, as it were, taking part in unnecessary, socialistic, redistributive, as it were, attempts to new mould the nature of America or Britain and the nature of Americans and the British. And I think the other speakers eloquently and accurately define that. But we also need to be understand that if we want to operate in the world scale and also to deal effectively or hopefully effectively against internal dissidents, we need to have the means to do so. I mean, the FBI may make mistakes, but it's a jolly sight better to have the FBI than to be in the situation of the 1920s, for example, when there was no such equivalent. It's a jolly sight better that America has the military it has now than it has the army of 1940, which was smaller than the army of Portugal, and so on and so forth. Okay? Now, I know nobody's going to agree with that, but I think those points were important ones to make. Let me just say a few words about the state and the threat to democracy, which was my text. In my view, democracy is a practice and an ideology. I think democracy is both. It's an ideology and a practice. A practice and an ideology that is the antithesis of the powerful state. Not least because democracy rests on the ideal and idea of individual liberty on the delegation of authority and power from individuals to government, not from government to individuals. I think that's very important. And I thought Mark was describing brilliantly the situation which you get when it, government thinks it's delegating uh, rights to individuals. It's not that government has the ultimate right. And also on the legitimacy of legal opposition, which is an absolutely fundamental point in a democracy and one that powerful states are apt to ignore. All of these principles are threatened by current concepts and practice of governance, notably the replacement of free choice by the mistaken idea that the state knows best, the argument from emergency, which we're seeing at the moment with the fiscal policies um, that have been pushed through, the appeal to populism, which Mr. Obama is very good at, but which, of course, is fundamentally anti-democratic, and the notion of elections as a plebiscitary validation of all state policies, which, again, is something you can see in your current administration. More specifically, the present fiscal crisis is being used by both the Brown and the Obama governments, and I put them in that order simply for alphabetical reasons, not with any suggestion of respective importance, but the Brown and Obama governments to extend greatly the scope of the state as if the countries were at war with the threat of recession and threatened with defeat by recession. Almost seems as though both governments is more concerned about that than actually the uh, current international situation they find themselves in. The rhetoric of power contributes greatly to this impression and also acts, in the case of both these governments, to delegitimate, in their views, all opposition by presenting it as failing to address the national nature of the crisis. In other words, both Mr Obama and Mr Brown argue that those that disagree with them 
automatically have no real, no real right to their opinions because they don't understand the severity of the crisis that ex exists. And they, of course, claim to have the monopoly of all the answers. Thus, a vitalist presentation of the people as represented <coughs> by the state threatens to remove the democratic practice of British and American public culture. In part, these are t tendencies latent to the particular character of mass democracy. And what I'm saying would not have surprised a Republican of, let's say, the 1920s. But specific developments over recent decades and still more years are also important. The equation of democracy with mass democracy is a product of changes in Anglo-American culture but also poses continual problems, notably of the relationship between the notion of the collective will and the existence of individual liberty. Moreover, the mass democracy represents not only an apparent, deeply flawed, solution to managerial and ideological problems, but also, in fact, a cause of both of these problems. In particular, the populist dimension of mass democracy poses problems for the expression of dissenting views and also encourages a notion of entitlement. A number of speakers this morning have been talking about aspects of this entitlement. Be under no illusions. If you were to have a national health service, you would not only be handing over, as Roger correctly says, a large percentage of your GMP to the state, you would also be creating a permanent politics of grievance in which people in North Dakota would feel that the state needs to act so that they have the same treatment as people have in South Dakota and so on and so forth, which of course gives the state an enormous amount of additional power because it becomes the arbiter between these competing demands and requirements. So in other words, consumerism in the form of a mass democracy which takes this notion of entitlements can be powerfully anti-conservative in the sense of conservatism being concerned with freedom. As I think it was Mark who said correctly, absolutely correctly this morning, offered the choice electorates will frequently go for anything other than freedom. Uh, they will go for their sense of entitlement. So in other words, this strikes at categories of community, duty, self-sacrifice, striving for excellence, competitiveness and self-improvement, all of which have been central to American culture and all of which have helped to make America the great country it is. Remember, I'm not just saying that in some bland amount of self-congratulation. You could have ended up, if you'd started America at 1775 and compared it with Mexico or Brazil, you could have ended up the same way. There is no inherent reason why American society should have been more successful than Mexico or Brazil, both of which have a similar sort of background in many important respects. Instead, it is the nature of American public culture, and in particular, the ability of free people to come together in protecting their freedom but taking it forward and using it that was never seen elsewhere in Latin America and that meant that the Americans were much better placed being on, as it were, the edge of European settlement to create a much more successful political and social world. Now, for conservatives, of course, we have an enormous problem. Uh, you know, there are real problems here. Just um, leaving aside, I assume most people here are conservatives. Um, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I may be mistaken, but we have these real problems here because we have to accept that our belief in freedom, our commitment to the idea of freedom and opportunity as central choices and central truths of conservatism is not now very much held by people who, as previous speakers have been saying, are incredibly committed to the idea that what they mean by freedom is entitlement. What we mean by entitlement is the right to be free. 
We do not mean by, by freedom the right to specifics which are allocated to us by governance and government. And that's a very important distinction. But I'm afraid it's a distinction which is not always very, very popular in the outer world. Recent decades have accentuated the difficulties of the current situation. The populist nature of politics has been greatly enhanced by shifts in the media, notably the rise of television, as an incessant factor in framing as much as expressing news and, uh, news and senses of rights. This rise has also been linked to the greater prominence of the leader figure, um, which can lead, as you see in the current situation in the United States, with a kind of populist suppression of or overcoming of, at least in the short term, the fact that there is a balanced constitution in the United States, that there is a, sp a spreading of power and authority among a number of agencies, and the president's abilities should be constrained. But, of course, the whole nature of modern media, the whole nature of the, of the practice of modern politics is to go for leader figures who, I mean, in the case of authoritarian states, you can see this very bluntly. I mean, look at how Mr. Chavez operates in Venezuela, who, as it were, reach over uh, the intermediate institutions in order to try and aggregate all power for themselves. That is why, of course, recently the Supreme Court in Honduras said that the, pres the then president was acting in an inappropriate fashion. Now, I don't wish to engage in scare tactics, but there are similarities between some of the assumptions underlying the current president of the United States and some of these other figures in Latin America. I'll just make that point. The idea that, in a way, intermediate institutions are a nuisance. They don't understand the true problem. Uh, that freedom is, should not be, that freedom, as it were, the freedom of the government to decide what is freedom, should not be constrained by the liberties represented in institu intermediate institutions. This is very powerfully what is the, a, a subtext in what is going on at the moment, and of course it's completely opposed to classical notions of the relationship between freedom and liberty, and between freedoms and, institu and intermediate institutions. Populism also draws on a number of structural changes, some of them deep in the character of modern democracy and some of more recent origin. Thus, to a degree, current concerns about the threat posed by the state to democracy relate to the type of state that, is, that can arise from modern democracy. In particular, the idea of a direct link between government and the electorate bypassing the institutions of democratic politics, notably but not only representative institutions, underlines the way in which showmen, Silvio Berlusconi, for example, is a good, idea, is a good example of this, can be become unusually and uniquely powerful. And, I, you know, Italy's a good... I mean, you know, you're, you're in a very fortunate position. You've got one of the oldest constitutions operative in the world. You don't tend to see, see this. As, you know, you think of yourself as a young, new country. Actually, America has a constitution that goes back to the 18th century, and people still discuss it and think in those terms. Bear in mind, most states do not have constitutions of this type. The vast majority of states in the world have constitutions which are more recent than 1945. Bang. Simple. All right? You know, France with the Fifth Republic, Italy, Germany, Japan, Russia, the whole of Europe with the Constitution of the European Union, uh, all countries that have been decolonized, etc., South, South Africa, etc., etc. As a result, all of these constitutions are much more weak, much more fragile, much more exposed to the danger of the leader figure using a plebiscitary democracy with some great cause, your cause is health reform for Mr Obama, using that in order to command a mandate, which of course they construct for themselves through manipulation, to command a mandate to then change what is often a rather fragile constitution. So in some respects, as I think Herb very correctly pointed out just now, you have a much better 
better chance of resisting these problems than most states. But it is very instructive to see that there is this common problem affecting mass democracy around the world. The situation of state power has been pushed to the fore in recent years by the interlinked issues of the war on terror and the policies to be adopted towards religious minorities rejecting majority norms, notably many, I would say most, Muslims in Europe. Both of these issues take what might otherwise be seen as abstract and move it into the realm of the here and now, while also presenting challenges for libertarians and authoritarians alike. And remember, among conservatives, we don't tend to talk about our differences too much in public, but there is both a strong libertarian tendency in conservatism and there is a strong authoritarian tendency in conservatism. In the United States, the latter tends to be downplayed. But bear in mind, in, as it does in Britain, but bear in mind, if we were sitting in many countries in the world and discussing conservative traditions, we would also be talking about, about a more authoritarian mix, not saying that there's no liberty, not saying there's no freedom, but just a slightly different mix. The Islamic issue underlines the extent to which any idea of democracy as arbitrating different interests is not likely to win support from a vocal com component in society. Moreover, this component can only be kept in order by ensuring that the state is able to deploy coercive powers. For a would-be libertarian such as myself, a great challenge is posed by the growing propensity of some religious groups to demand a position of peculiar privilege for their beliefs and views and then to seek to change society accordingly. This challenge is best addressed in societies with a long-standing legal separation of church and state, notably the United States of America, but even there, the existing constitutional parameters would probably have buckled if you'd had the strain of a rate of Islamic immigration akin to that seen in Europe. I mean, you just think about it. If all those Mexicans and Guatemalans and Hondurans that had come to the United States had been Muslims uh, and had maintained their Islamic affiliation here, you would be in a, a situation that was more similar to ours. The great success that you've got in that case is that you have had uh, very large immigration in recent decades, but fundamentally linguistic nationalism, which is what you're dealing with with many of the Hispanics, you know, I demand that even if I'm living in North Dakota and I'm a tiny minority, nevertheless every form should be in Spanish, this sort of rubbish. Um, that kind of linguistic nationalism is much less of a threat than the problem posed by large-scale Islamic immigration. I think that's quite important, that there are different strands in immigration posing different problems. And that's one of the reasons we can't cope in Europe is not just because we're Europeans, which is sometimes the theme, the subtext of our nice American friends, but also actually <laughs> because we do have a very different kind of problem, very formidable problem in my Self view. Self-created problem. Self-created. I agree with you entirely. I agree with you entirely. I think this is the most appalling experiment. It went wrong disastrously. Um, the idea of transplanting large numbers of peasants from you know, Pakistan and, uh, and Bangladesh and putting them in British cities where in a world which has no real need for you know, uh, ignorant and uh, uneducated workforce. And then, uh, you know, it's, it's ridiculous in economic terms, let alone the idea that they should be allowed to sustain their social patterns. I mean, I agree with you entirely, Daniel. The point is not only one of assessing differing types of assimilation, but rather of considering how far the power of the state has to be expanded in a semi-permanent fashion in order to deal with what is now a long-standing and grave socio-political challenge in many countries. I think that's an issue, and I suspect it's one way in which we will diverge from you. We've already diverged. America is already a more successful society. It's a freer society. It's a more impressive society. But also there is this particular problem that either governance in Britain just gives in, which it might do. David pointed that out. It might just give in. 
Or if some of the states in Europe, and the best example at the moment is France, try and make a fist of things, the problem is that they are going to emerge in ways that are very, very different to and what might seem to you to be really quite unacceptable. So banning all all forms of religious activity in the educational field may well be a, legacy, a remedy that the French uh, adopt. For most Conservatives, the answer would be an affirmative one. Most Conservatives, I suspect, in European countries would, uh, would rather see some idea of national integrity preserved, some idea of national identity preserved, and they are not prone as prone as the people on the left to embrace the liberal and human rights cultures and arguments which have left the West so much weaker in the face of terrorism and other challenges, and which I think I grown Herb this morning was talking about the enormous challenge posed by the United Nations human rights attitudes. And remember, human rights is a political rhetoric. I mean, you know, human rights is not an indivisible. Human rights are as much represented by us as by our opponents. It's just we've allowed that language to be taken over by our opponents, which is, I think, a real pity. But anyway, I think that, you know, there is a, a, a likelihood that the tension in many European countries will be between conservatism embracing an authoritarian approach and having to have recourse to the state and human rights being pushed by the left on behalf of uh, a, you know, a sort of patchwork coalition, including uh, Islamic populations. At the same time, there is concern about the degree to which the state's ability to discern and define threat presents a challenge to the grounding of freedom in liberty and of liberty in freedom. That, I think, is fundamental, and that is one of the reasons America is so successful, because you have grounded your freedom in liberty and you have grounded your liberty in freedom. Nobody else has managed that equation as well. Obviously, it's under enormous threat at the moment. Uh, I'm well aware of that. I'm not being bland. But you are so much more successful than the other side of the Atlantic. In part, this is a matter of ascending or descending theories of sovereignty and governance. Both in but in truth, both are challenged by the prospect of long-term disaffection by a group in society. Whether you take the view that the community take comes first, individuals come first, freedom comes first, which is my view, or whether you take, because I'm a libertarian, or whether you take the view that the state comes first, which is what an authoritarian would take, in practice, and that's a classic conservative debate, in practice, both of those views are challenged by long-term disaffection by a substantial portion of the population. Um, <coughs> Yet at the same time, it might well be asked whether the government as a representative of the people should not take a more robust attitude within the existing law to those who would use the law as a cover for the expression of anti-societal views. Well, of course, in my view, very much so. In particular, freedom of expression, which is a key cause, means and consequence of democratic culture and practice, is threatened at the behest of those who argue that it threatens the views of minority groups. I mean, I think it's absolutely ludicrous. I mean, we've heard references it this morning. We heard a reference to that that Canadian uh, cleric discussing homosexuality. The same, incidentally, there are cases like that in Britain as well. Uh, I can tell you, um, I work in a university, uh, universities in Britain. We're not civil servants, but universities are under the state, in effect. Uh, there's only one private university. And, you know, if you say something that's, uh, that's unacceptable to the university, even if it is perfectly legal, you would get suspended. We don't have tenure. Being suspended would be 
first stage to being kicked out very rapidly. Uh, recently happened to some academic in Leeds who made some comment about uh, Islam that was, I think, perfectly reasonable, that most of us would consider perfectly unexceptional, uh, that uh, would be actually quite mild compared to what Andy was saying this morning, but he was out pretty pronto. Um, somebody like the demographer Coleman in Oxford uh, was in a sense, his career, his career was ruined because he spent too much of his time warning about the impact of large-scale immigration into the country. So there is, in practice, a form of ideological policing in Britain already. Uh, and I think, I think one has to be aware of this. It is, uh, it, is, it is dangerous because it closes down the debate uh, and it means that in practice, and again, I noticed the theme this morning, the theme this morning with many of the speakers was that American academia is left of centre and indulging in a sort of hobby horse. You're right about American academics. I can tell you the small change of American academic conversation is often bitterly against the values of your society. But, uh, but the point is, in my country, the problem is that it's also actively, in, uh, actively backed at an institutional level, which I think is a real problem. And, of course, this issue came to the fore in Britain as long ago as 1989, uh, with British Muslims demonstrating in support of the fatwa issued by the Ayatollah that called for the murder of uh, Salman Rushdie. But, incidentally, it's not just the Muslims. We had an interesting case the year before last in Birmingham when a play written by a Sikh displaying Sikh society in a less than, in, in a less than marvelous fashion. I mean, essentially, it presented fathers as abusive patriarchs of their children, uh, had to be withdrawn from the Birmingham Playhouse. We're not talking about some tiny little fringe theatre. We're talking about the major theatre in, in Birmingham because the police uh, told the Playhouse that they couldn't protect it against rioting demonstrators. Now, this, to my mind, is no different. I mean, you know, the Muslims are worse, but it's no different. It's the same problem. Unless you can protect in society the expression of views, I say, whether these views are majority views, as the indigenous population of Britain would like to think their views are, or whether these views are minority views. But unless you can, unless you can protect people from that, you end up with a situation in which it is simply the most violent that prevail, which is not welcome. It's not welcome at all. That way is anarchy, that way is chaos, that way is large-scale violence, and that way, in the end, is something that also does, just produces a society which nobody in their right minds would want to live in. Uh, I hope we're not going to end up that way, but what is interesting, the troubling thing about Europe over the last century is we have seen repeatedly how societies that were, in many respects, relatively well-educated, could turn to the most appalling political uh, and governmental solutions um, without really much public action against it. I'm nearly come to the end, I promise you. Now, to me, of course, resort to a stronger state is still troubling, A, because I'm a Conservative and it's just as likely the state will be Labour and I distrust the Lab Labour Party, B, because we have the specific problem in Europe that Euro, Euro convergence is meaning that a lot of power is taking away from national governments and national communities towards what essentially is an unelected uh, bureaucracy in Brussels which is very keen to redistribute and very keen to intervene and very much a threat to liberty. So in a way, I'm stuck in a particularly difficult position because I want government to be stronger to deal with the opponents I don't like. 
Um, but at the same time, inconsistency here, but at least I'm pushing my inconsistency to the fore. Most people, if you listen carefully, I'm not talking about any of my colleagues here, but most people, if you listen carefully, are inconsistent and never own up to it. Uh, I'm owning up to my inconsistency. I want government to be stronger against the problems I see, but I'm really worried about what government will do if it is not, uh, as it were, operating in an appropriate fashion. Part of the question for me is whether government is too strong but another as or too weak, but another aspect is posed by the question of whether government is strong in the wrong respects, failing to provide security but being too obtrusive to and in society as a whole because it mistakes the nature of society and defines it in terms of governmental power. Attitudes play a key role. In particular, a challenge is posed by the extent to which governments present not society, not as a whole, but as, instead as a set of segments that they define that can be dealt with separately through, in the case of Europe, so-called community leaders, a real weasel word that is, um, and, and that need to be regarded as different segments. This ignores Id the idea than what should be the practice of a common citizenship with equality under the law and freedom owned equally. So, for example, you can see the problem in Europe with those states such as myself, my own state under Mr Blair in particular, Brown to a lesser extent, which relied on community leaders to act as representatives with Islam, which of course meant that absolutely no protection is provided to Muslim women uh, who are completely neglected by their so-called community leaders. I need hardly also add that these community leaders tend to be the more strident, sometimes the more extreme, certainly the less accommodating members of those communities. And there is a clear parallel here with the nature of international order and statecraft, which also requires probing. And here, the idea of governance is a threat to the autonomy of particular countries, um, as discussed, and I thought Herb provided a, a good instance of that, so I won't take that any further. If I might just briefly sum up. Conservatism has a number of different strands. Conservatism is a coalition. We could be sitting here and discussing, after all, the tension between the politics and ideology of prudence and the politics and ideology of commitment if we were looking at international relations. We could be discussing the extent to which rights and responsibilities have a different, different credence, different traction in different conservative <coughs> traditions. What I'm trying to show here is that in dealing with some of the key issues at the present moment, the state is, I agree entirely with Roger, I agree entirely with the theme of this conference, the state is a fundamental problem, but in part it is a problem because we cannot do without it. We cannot do without the state in order to wage external war, however badly or unsuccessfully it does it. We cannot deal without, do without public institutions to provide security internally, because otherwise we end up with chaotic militias who will spend their time fighting each other, and in a way we, we just as much empower those people we don't like, like Muslim communities, to be legitimately armed, because if otherwise you know, that's what's going to happen if you say that the citizens can look after themselves. So in a way, we are reliant on the state, but the problem is that a combination of recent politics, of the particular agendas of the current American administration and the Labour governments of Europe, uh, in, in Britain, of the European Union, of mass populism, has made the state less benign, more dangerous as a force, and that in a way, it's interesting to look at the historical resonance, but these are problems of the here and now. And a last point, 
In one sense, the problem is that in key respects, the state, as we were hearing this morning, is too demanding, too powerful, too insistent. And in other respects, the state is too weak. In my country, for example, we no longer have the death penalty. So people who actively compass, compass plan the death of fellow citizens, terrorists, mass murderers, would-be mass murderers, we can't execute them. We no longer have conscription. Conscription is of limited military value these days, but it represents an important affirmation of the role of the state in some respects. So in some respects, the state is actually much weaker than it was 60 <coughs> years ago, 50 years ago. But the trouble is, the difficulty is, it's weaker at doing what it needs to do, and instead it has become much more powerful at the behest of socialist ideologues and people who wish to use the state to new mould the society of the United States and to new mould the society of Europe. New moulding it not with the understanding of freedom that meant so much to the founding fathers, but in pursuit of ideologies that are fundamentally un-American. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks, thanks for that, Jeremy. We've already got some people from the panel who would like to make a comment. Roger. Uh, yes, but first of all, Jeremy, I'd like to associate myself with your phrase, the Obama ministry. We usually say Obama administration here, but I think the Obama ministry has a, <laughs> a, a nicer ring to it. I wanted to just comment on um, something you began with and then actually ended with, uh, namely the phrase big government. I think that um, uh, if I'm understanding you, I, I, I think I agree with you, but, but um, I think that the phrase big government may be equivocal. I mean, we, 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 we would distinguish between a, a large-hearted person and a person with an enlarged heart. They yes. sound the same, but they're very different, or a weighty yes. thinker and an overweight thinker. They're different things. And I think by big government, we don't mean necessarily a strong government. I noticed in, in your description of this distinction, uh, it, it, it kind of one thing sort of slid, slid into the other. So I think we want to be clear about what it is that we're that we're criticizing. You know, I've never met an aircraft carrier that I didn't like. Yes. I'm fine with that. Yes. That's, yes. You know, that yes. kind of strength yes. Is, yes. Is, 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 is okay. And so I don't think it's really, uh, you know, you, you, you um, uh, asked whether you were being inconsistent here. I don't think you're being inconsistent in, in asking for, for, for both of those things. It's not so much a matter of whether the state is too weak, but whether um, the society of which the state is an expression has lost, lost confidence in its fundamental values. I mean, I think, you know, per, you know it's arguable, but I mean, maybe uh, the, the fact that we no longer uh, execute people who are, you know, place themselves heinously outside the social compact, maybe that's an a, a, a illustration of that. There are different sides of that. But I think that it's not so much the state, but the society of which the state is an expression that is... Uh, well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I suppose, going back to a famous old phrase, the night watchman facility of government I really want, but the night watchman now has to have a, carry a big stick. Yes. Um, but I really cannot see the logic, particularly in the United States, which is a continent pretending to be a country. What it is to be American is not identical in Spokane and, and you know, in Alabama. It is ludicrous to propose some 
idea of social welfare that is unitary across the whole country, because you would need a government that is so interventionist to do so. I know, just what, I know what somebody's proposing to do that. Though. Yes, I know, I know, I know. We have the same problem in Britain. I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages of public provision in some areas, you know, but one of the real problems is that the only way to secure it as an, e if, you're, if, you're a t if you've got an egalitarian ideology, which of course is the ideology at the moment, is again an enormous level of intervention in which the government is endlessly tinkering with society to get society to conform with its model. Now this is not the way to run anything. It is unfunctional, it is ideologically unsound, it is, as we heard this morning from speaker after speaker, very eloquently, absolutely correctly, I mean obviously you live in America but you are absolutely correct what you're saying, it takes away a sense of personal responsibility. That is a real problem in Britain. So social welfare, whilst on the one hand it seems tremendously attractive, which is how Mr Obama is selling his policy, actually is extraordinarily destructive. Jim Pearson. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much. Really enjoyed hearing this paper. And uh, the point he makes is very valid as between national security as requiring a strong and capable government uh, and the welfare state as being something different. I wonder here whether the ideology underpinning the welfare state is antithetical to the kind of ideas and citizens that are required to maintain a strong national defense for national security. The welfare state, uh, the ideology of the welfare state is based upon dependency and entitlement, as many of us have said, while uh, national defense seems to be based on something like duty as the price of citizenship. Well, I think that's a very interesting <coughs> question. The small number of countries that have retained conscription, I mean, one can think of Israel, one can think of Switzerland, one can think of Finland, are societies that still have a sense in which um, the duty of the citizen is part of their freedom. And one of the difficulties that we've got, I'm afraid to say, is we seem to have lost that, the notion that our duty is part of our freedom. So as it were, duty seems to be something it's somebody else's responsibility. You know, the classic thing, the people, you know, the, I think you were making this point about the shooting in the Montreal uh, corridor. You know, it is your duty to help your fellow person. It's as simple as that. You know, it really shouldn't be at risk to your own life. You know, you know, not oh well, uh, you know, will that will my shirt get spoiled or will I get sweaty doing this? At risk to your own life, and you cannot really have a fully grounded sense of freedom unless you feel some sort of duty to others, because otherwise all your freedom is is a crude individualism, and you can't live in a community that way. You can live on a desert island like that. You can live up on the Montana Hill like that, but you can't live in a community like that. So, but unless you have a sense of duty, you're going to end up with a situation that the state allocates the duties. The state allocates the responsibility. And that is really destructive. Yeah. Uh, because it takes away the freedom. It, when the state allocates the duties, it takes away the freedom. Uh, well, that is really destructive. Yeah, it, it, well, in Europe, you could build your welfare state and not worry so much about defense because uh, Europe operated under the American defense umbrella for so long. In America, this, seems, this battle seems to be being fought out here, this welfare state ideology versus national security and defense, where we've got both powerful establishments, and uh, the tension has yet to be worked out. But just on the historical uh, points that you made very validly, uh, 
America built up its national government partly out of many fears from Europe, but also as you have spoken about before, Jeremy, about fears about the Barbary pirates. Mm. Uh, and if you read what many uh, American leaders said at that time about the Barbary pirates, it sounds very similar to what people say today about, about that threat. But as about democracy versus security, many people in America mentioned the British election of uh, 1945, where the beverage report was voted in uh, and Churchill voted out. Uh, Andrew McCarthy. Uh, I thought that was uh, wonderfully eloquent, as always, Jeremy. I, I, I wonder the this concept of, of big government, I think part of the problem we have is that big government is a static term. And the, the national interest and the threats that a nation faces are dynamic. And this whole concept of uh, this whole idea of, of self-determination, the assumptions that went into the design of our fundamental law were that politics would be more important than law. We actually were, were built as a system that was confident uh, in the ability and the, and the uh, imperative of the American people to make their wants and needs known through political processes. Um, and I think what's happened in the last three quarters of a century is that we've shifted from a political system to a legal system where legislation is, is, is basically the, uh, the preference over the political process. And the problem with legislation is that it freezes, it gives you big government permanently because it freezes whatever your big government of the moment is in place. Uh, we had a, a major debate here over the last few years about uh, surveillance. And the, the cause of the debate was that in overreaction to uh, the surveillance scandals that we had of the 1970s, Congress jumped in uh, and we changed what had been historically a situation where we conducted surveillance as an executive process uh, in accordance with whatever the threat mosaic was at the time. And if the president went overboard or, or was not aggressive enough, the check against that was politics. Instead, in 78, we have Congress jump in and give us a law that freezes in place not only the assumptions about surveillance, but actually the technology of surveillance stuck in the, in the technology of the 1970s. And it ended up giving us this scandal that we had because we get, you know, 30, 30 years down the road uh, with a complete revolution in telecommunications and we're still stuck uh, with the statutory weaponry that we put in place in 1978. Um, Holmes said that the, uh, the great ordinances of the Constitution uh, were written in, in shades of gray, not in black and white. And the assumption behind that was this notion that as threats were greater, um, people would recognize the need to have executive procedures and executive processes and the need for the executive branch, that part of the big government, to move to the fore because that was the design for dealing with threats to the United States. And that as threats would recede, the executive power would recede. And there wasn't a need to jump in and pass legislation every time the, the, the threat mosaic went up or down. Um, so that what you always had was the capacity for big government when you needed it. 
but not necessarily the reality of big government. And what was to check that, what was to temper it, uh, was the political will, the ballot box, the political will of the American people. And I think that where we've gone off course and where we've really frozen big government in place is by changing the culture from a political one to a legal one. Yeah, very briefly, I agree with you. There's one specific. You've also, in social policy, allowed the federal government to become too, pop too powerful at the expense of the states, the individual states. Right. In, in, so that, in a sense, the federal government should focus on what Roger was talking about, you know, the, the defense and security issues. There is no inherent reason why the federal government should be a a taking part in a lot of the social welfare issues. It should be up to the democratic decision of people in individual states. In part, this comes from desegregation. I mean, in part, it comes from the grand society, the idea being that you can't, st in a sense, the very anti-American idea, that you can't trust the individual states to do it because you don't like what the southern states are doing. But in a sense, that leaves that's left America with what, was, what had been a short-term problem. That's left it with a long-term legacy of a central government which is doing things that do not be, need being done at the centre and which is then extending its powers immensely. And Mr. Obama is a direct, or oh, sorry, President Obama is a direct product of that kind of, that kind of mindset. Uh, I'd like to, uh, Jeremy, uh, I think it was a wonderful paper, by the way, but I want to elaborate on a point that Jim was making a moment ago, and that is the issue of duty, because it does strike me that capitalism, or particularly the affluence that emerges from capitalism, does raise a lot of questions about duty. Can an affluent society with a low birth rate demand duty from its citizens? And if, it's, if that is not true, and, uh, and it seems to me that it's a very interesting question, then when people enter the military, they have to learn something about the nature of duty. Uh, one of the, the first things that is done in Paris Island in the Marine Corps is to, uh, when General Hoare was there running the Paris Island operation, was to say to the Marines, everything that you've learned in school is now going to be relearned. You're going to read the Federalist Papers, and you're going to understand something about the nature of duty, in large part because things that might very well have been taken for granted at another time can no longer be taken for granted. But it does raise a lot of interesting questions, even from the European standpoint. How do you introduce the idea of duty when, in fact, affluent societies, by and large, leaving aside the role of government, affluent societies, by and large, do not demand duty of their citizens? Mm. Yes. Uh, Daniel. Um, just a few sort of random points, really. One on this conscription business. Um, I recall that uh, our, our, our late friend Irving Crystal uh, described how his time in the army in the Second World War and just after um, cured him of his Trotskyist socialism uh, because for the first time he actually met the proletariat en masse uh, and uh, uh, he discovered they were not the men he'd been told by, by his intellectual friends in, in New York. Um, on the other hand, it has traditionally not been the case that Anglo-Saxon democracies have conscription as a normal, regular part of our system. I mean, it's always been for us an emergency uh, system, uh, which we've, we've tended to abolish as soon as possible after any major war. So I'm always a little bit suspicious of, of people who want to reintroduce it for social engineering sort of reasons. Anyway, um, but I, I leave that hanging. Um, I also wanted to throw in the idea, which again occurred to me reading Irving, uh, rereading Irving, um, the distinction between a democracy and a republic. They're not the same things. And Irving's argument was that the great strength of the United States is that 
it combines the best of both. That the, the, the inherent dangers of democracy, the tendency towards plebiscitary dictatorship and so on, authoritarianism, um, are checked in the, in the US Constitution by the, the, the classical republic, Republican uh, institutions, the intermediate institution, things like the Supreme Court and so on. Um, and I just wanted to throw that thought into the, uh, some of the other distinctions uh, that, you, that you were making. Very quickly, very quickly, just on the former point, yes, you're absolutely right. Conscription in a standing army plays very little role in the Anglo-American tradition. What does play a role is the idea of militia service, the idea of voluntarily coming together to join. Now, obviously, that's not part of how we would now organize an army for the last hundred years. But for most of Anglo-American history, the idea of every male having a responsibility to act to protect their community, in the case of the American state militias, their state, uh, in the case of the British going back their county, the county third, the county militia, um, and uh, you know, uh, supplementing that with big volunteer movements, of which the last big example in British history is, of course, the uh, Home Guard in World War II. But that's just the last stage of a whole host. They used volunteer movements which uh, in the Boer War, they used it in the Napoleonic Wars and so on. Um, I think it's only relatively recent that the idea that you have absolutely no responsibility to the community other than as a taxpayer and doing what the government tells you um, and that in a sense therefore you're a subordinate subject I mean, I think this is the problem, that your relationship with government is that it's a subordinate subject. Now, you were talking about, um, you know, the, as it were, the state deciding what health care you could have. I mean, this is exactly part of the same sort of thing. It should not be up to the state, however you conceptualise the state, whether you conceptualise it as lovely bureaucrats or nasty bureaucrats, that's not the point. It should not be up to them to decide that you can or can't have your teeth whitened. It should be up to you to decide that if you... I mean, I, you know, most British people have appalling teeth by American standards, but that's because we choose not to spend our money that way. It's not part of our culture. But if somebody wants to spend their money that way, they should be perfectly entitled to do so. And I'm, re I'm really troubled, really troubled by the idea that a state controls things. I mean, we've had so many literary warnings, we've had so many historical warnings, we've had so many ideological warnings of what this leads to. And I know to an audience here it might seem ludicrous to talk about um, some of the parallels in foreign countries or in literature, but bear in mind, if you have state provision and state control and you oppose that, you want to do it differently, you want to use your own money, your own efforts to have a difference for yourself or your family, then you become a social criminal and you need to be dealt with in order that society can understand that you are wrong. That's where it ends up. That is where it ends up. Because, you know, however benign it sounds, these kinds of notions of public provision, the actual point about them is that if you do not agree, then you become a criminal. Now, this is just an absurdity. I mean, the British government has thought about banning fishing. I've never fished in my... Well, actually, I did once, but I, I'm, you know, I never caught a fish in my life. I have no particular interest in people fishing. I've never sat on a horse in my life. I've never had no interest in hunting. But why should these people suddenly become criminals for doing something which, just because of the behest of a small group of people or even a large group of people who decide that it's unacceptable and that then, if they don't agree, they are criminalised at once?
at We've once. Got a quick point by Daniel I, I and then Mark. I haven't quite finished. Sorry. Sorry. The main point I wanted to make, though, uh, since we're now yeah. being honest with one another about problems of conservatism, is this. We haven't yet talked at all about the Bush administration. Okay? Now, is there not a problem about big government conservatism? Didn't something go wrong over the last mm. eight years? Um, I was a great supporter one of the very few people in my country, of the, the last president in his foreign policy. Um, but my American friends tell me that uh, all was not well, even before the Obama administration started spending trillions as though there, were, there was no tomorrow. And in fact, uh, you know, I seem to remember exactly a year ago, you know, after the Lehman Brothers, I'm sure we're going to hear much more from Tim in, after his paper uh, about the economic side of things. But, you know... The actions of the Bush government, uh, Bush administration, were not above criticism, to put it mildly, in, in its response to uh, the crisis. So can we perhaps be honest with ourselves and address what went wrong in that administration? Because without that, I don't think um, Obama would be able to paint the Bush administration as the evil empire, which is exactly what he's doing. You know, for Reagan, the evil empire was the Soviet Union. For Obama, it's the Bush administration. You know, he's running constantly against that. So why? Dan, I'd like to just make a point here, if I may, a very brief one. And I think you've raised an interesting point, but it was a point that I think was addressed by Jeremy, where he said governments very often can do, uh, have the power to do the wrong thing as well as the right thing. The Bush administration did many wrong things. The prescription drug program, for example, was the wrong thing, in my judgment. Uh, the the uh, tariff that was placed on steel in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Pennsylvania was the wrong thing. Uh, the, uh, the attempt to bail out the banks uh, when Paulson was the Secretary of the Treasury was the wrong thing. So it was the use of government power, but for the wrong purposes. The, the, the fact is that the, you could certainly say that the Bush administration did some right things when it comes to foreign policy, but it did many wrong things domestically, which set the stage for Obama, who could use and take advantage of the precedents that were created by the Bush administration. In that sense, what was wrong with Bush big government conservatism is that he used this power for the wrong reasons. Or some of the wrong reasons. Jim. There's been a, an idea in American politics for quite a while that the conservatives need to dish the Whigs, as, dis, I think it, uh, it was, as it was applied to Disraeli, that is, to steal the issues from the liberals. And I think that prescription drug program was, was an example of that. And it never works because they attacked it anyway. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they want more of it. As, as, to, as to the free market aspect, of course, uh, Herbert Hoover played that, and it didn't work so well for him either. So uh, it, it's not clear how, how this needs to be played, but uh, there's no question on the question of spending that the Bush administration uh, pushed that too far. Uh, we've got Mark and then Roger, and then we'll open on, things up. Uh, on, on the morning of, of September 11th, as, as most of us in this room will remember, the president when those planes struck was in a grade school in Florida, uh, famously reading My Pet Goat uh, to an audience of uh, five and six-year-olds, which, which as an example of how trying to steal liberal clothing never works for conservatives, all the people who drive around saying, won't it be a great day uh, when it, the Pentagon has to hold bake sales rather than our schools? Uh, so come the day, the planes fly into the buildings. He's there in the grade school in Florida reading My Pet Goat. Michael Moore makes it the big first scene in his film, 
showing what a boob the president is, sitting there reading my pet goat to the grade schoolers when the, when the planes strike. There is something uh, that is uh, very worrying about that image, because it is, it is a good example of the difference between the strong government, which, which by definition will mean government sticking to its very limited constitutional responsibilities and fulfilling them, and trying to do everything, particularly on a nationwide scale. I don't believe the President of the United States should be the school superintendent-in-chief. And when I was on a uh, school committee in my town, I, as a matter of routine, voted against any kind of federal intervention uh, in the school system. We took no federal money. Uh, we voted to take part in no federal programs, uh, simply as a jurisdictional matter, not just, as, not just because we believe that it was our school and nothing to do with the federal government, uh, but that actually you cannot, it is damaging to try and construct a national school system from Florida to Alaska, from Maine to Hawaii. Um, and when we get, uh, when we start talking about broader concepts like duty and citizenship, this isn't just about national service. Uh, it, it, I think in the end that floats free of government too. When the Titanic went down, uh, on its maiden voyage, the social norm of women and children first held up. James Cameron made a movie about it a few years ago uh, in which uh, he implied that it didn't. Uh, in defiance of the historical record, he ended up having to buy gravestone markers for no-name forgotten people in Scotland that he gratuitously insulted in the film. But the social norm held up. Uh, men kissed their wives and children uh, goodbye and watched them go into the lifeboats and went down with the ship. That's something to do with national service. That's a broader sense of duty, uh, of duty as implicitly connected to freedom uh, and the responsibilities of the individual. And, where, and if we're going to argue about what conservatives got right and what conservatives got wrong, I think what Mrs. Thatcher got wrong very badly is that she... Uh, 20, 30 years ago, is that she, she liberated the British people economically from confiscatory tax rates and other burdens, but she did not liberate them in the civic sense. So you had small, prosperous town, I remember sitting in uh, the village hall in Kyneton, Warwickshire, which is a prosperous community full of wealthy people, uh, and uh, on the eve of the 1997 election, and they're all questioning the MP about why, uh, about uh, the crime, in, increasing crime in the village. And he says he's going to have a word with Warwickshire Constabulary, and maybe they can send a patrol car uh, to drive through the village a second time per week. Now, that village is a prosperous community and could easily afford to do what uh, my town does, which is to hire a police chief and buy him a cruiser. It doesn't cost a lot of money. Generally speaking, the cruiser costs more than the cop. Uh, so it's not, it's not, a, it's not uh, something, it's something that those citizens could afford to do. It, again, in New Hampshire, I think in my town, uh, there, were, there was something like uh, between town, county, state, and federal, uh, the average person in New Hampshire votes for over 300 elected officials. Um, and, of course, most of those are not paid. They're, they're, they're civic roles that people take, uh, again, as part of the duty of citizenship. Uh, by economically liberating the British people 20, 30 years ago, but not liberating them in the civic sense to govern themselves in a meaningful sense, I think, in part, that narrow definition of conservatism 
uh, led to the phenomenon you have in Britain, which is the most moneyed underclass in the Western world. The underclass is rolling in it. The underclass lives in comfortable suburban homes and has got all the money it wants to go rampaging across Europe, uh, in part because, of, I think, of the death of civic life. Uh, and the big mistake that Mrs. Thatcher made in not uh, also liberating, uh, uh, liberating citizens uh, in more than a very narrow economic sense. Uh, Roger. Um, yes, I, just to address uh, Daniel's point again about uh, the last president, um, I think there are plenty of policies that can be criticized. Her mentioned the prescription drugs for seniors, uh, and many, many things, the steel tariffs, lot, lots of things. But it seems to me that the, the crucial thing really is encapsulated in, in that, the phrase that is, I think, forever associated with this presidency, namely, compassionate conservatism. I always abominated that phrase, not because I'm against compassion, compassion or conservatism, but because I think it was a, uh, a, dis, a, a, a dishonest attempt to take a, pay, a rhetorical page from the lexicon of liberal sanctimoniousness. And they, uh, it's, it's something dishonest about it. If you really want to be compassionate to people, you try to help them to help themselves. You don't create these gigantic programs that uh, foster uh, dependence, and that's really what what uh, what he did. So it, it seems to me that that's, in in, a, in some sense, the battle the battles that we're facing now are, are, are rhetorical battles. That is to say, uh, rhetoric in the sense that Aristotle meant it, the art of persuasion. We have lost the initiative somehow. We conservatives, uh, we have ceded the moral high ground to the other side. Um, not that they they don't deserve it, but they have all of the nice words, you know. And we need to uh, we need to either to get those words back, or to come up with words of our own that are enabling, that will uh, that are marching words for for our side. And um, it seems to me that that really is the the, the fund. If I had to put you know say what was really wrong with the Bush administration, it would, it would be that. Are there any questions or comments from the floor? Uh, uh, Vanessa Nyman. Uh, but I have to wait for uh, the microphone, if you will. Um, yeah, I was, um, uh, first of all, I didn't agree with your definition of um, big government versus, I thought it was a bit of a sleight of hand. Um, strong government is entirely different from big government, and uh, it's not difficult to pass out. But I was very interested in one point that you made, which was, um, you talked about the creation of the cult of leaders, of leadership, which is a bit something I'm, I'm, I've recently become very obsessed with myself, um, and I'm uh, researching. Anyway, um, and you talk about, first you talk about um, the media creation and the, and the role of that in creating this populist um, uh, following of, of the of, uh, cult following of leaders. And then you say that the Constitution was the main aspect, was basically, you implied it, that when talking about the US Constitution, there was the main aspect in the ability to resist this rise of the cult of leadership, of leaders. Is that, would you agree that I'm paraphrasing yes, I would more say, or less accurately? I would say the Constitution. And could, would you say more about that? Because you, yeah. you, okay. you seem to make a logical leap. Okay, can I just very briefly, very briefly, because yeah. time's pressing. Um, I think that monarchy, and then the president is your version of a monarch. I don't mean that in a critical sense. Monarchy has several problems. One of the classic problems with monarchy is how to ensure legitimacy and how to ensure ability. 
Um, dynastic monarchy does not provide you with ability. All right? um, most of the meritocratic monarchs in world history, in other words, monarchs that have gained power through their own efforts, have done so through violence. So Napoleon is a classic example of a meritocratic monarch. Now, what the United States system uniquely does, uh, uniquely for a state of its scale, um, is provide you with a system that provides ability, at least as defined by the electorate voting for a candidate, and legitimacy in terms of the, the way it's done and a, and a time period. But of course, at the same time, I thought that comment about a republic, it is a monarchy that is located in a republican context, with that republican context being provided by the checks and balances of intermediate institutions and other sources of authority and power within the American Constitution. Now, my concern is that all systems of that type, the American is the most important one, all systems of, those of that type are affected by the modern media with its focus on the personality cult, which, as it were, de deprives other institutions within the state, other institutions within the community, of the degree of public interest and support. So they get drained of it, and the focus is entirely on the leader. So the monarch then, as it were, is able to ignore the or lessen the restraints and appeal <coughs> over them to the bulk of the population. Yes. Now, I would argue that yeah, I would argue that that is what is going on at the present moment in the United States. Incidentally, you can also see it at the world scale. These kind of these kind of appeals to sentiment in some of the president's speeches. I mean, we had reference this morning to the Cairo speech, which was a speech that was singularly full of sentiment, appealing to a kind of world image out there, rather than actually addressing issues that might be complex, because issues that are complex don't appeal in a kind of media-friendly age. Any more comments? Or, uh, James Pinero. Hi. Um, I'd just like to pick up on a, a point that Mark raised. Uh, Mark lives in my favorite state in the Union, New Hampshire. And New Hampshire has a very distinct identity as a state. And I wonder, with your story, can conservatives make any traction with the issue of states' rights, or was that argument lost? The issue, the idea of states taking back control from a federal government. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think uh, I think there's a tragedy in that the the great iconic states of this uh, union. Uh, California, New York, the ones uh, foreigners have heard of, uh, are the basket cases right now. I think, I think what uh, Californians have done to California and what New Yorkers have done to New York uh, is beyond belief. But in, in the end, uh, the idea that a, a somehow a continental, uh, as you put it, a continental authority uh, can take over from failed states like California and New York and as uh, Obama in, um, in, uh, in, in one of these uh, states of the union, pseudo-states of the unions he does every 20 minutes now, uh, <laughs> singled out some girl in uh, South Carolina, I believe it was, uh, who'd written to him complaining about the peeling paint in her, in her high school. Uh, the president cannot be responsible for paint jobs in high schools, it's simply not possible. And even if you thought it was a great idea, you imagine what the, the cost of the paint per gallon is gonna be by the time you've erected a vast federal bureaucracy to manage the purchase of uh, federally licensed approved paint tones 
uh, for schools uh, across the continent and all the way to Hawaii. It simply cannot be done. Um, in the new criterion a, a couple of weeks ago, I, I, uh, I made a, I used an example of uh, two, two bridges on dirt roads uh, near me, one of which had applied for a federal, some kind of federal state stimulus usual subsidy plan uh, and had come in uh, uh, with an estimated cost of $2.8 million to be completed five, six, who knows how many years down the road. One, they, they didn't bother going through the federal state subsidy plan. They did it themselves, whole thing done for $30,000. Uh, and that, that, it goes on at every level throughout this land. At some point, people are going to have to say, uh, people are going to have to take the environmental slogan, think globally and act locally. If you're not going to act globally, act locally, you're going to end up with uh, things like UN taxation. Uh, you're going to end, and, and, and who do you call then? Who do you vote out when there are transnational regimes uh, on the environment, on gun control, on health, on all kinds of other issues? Uh, if that slogan means anything, uh, then people have to take back their rights and exercise them at the local level. Yeah, uh, we seem to have those sort of transnational institutions in the EU already, yeah. and they can't be voted out. But any final thoughts from Jeremy? No, I mean, I think we dealt with many of the issues. I do think that, and I think this is one of the great importances of the new criterion, that Roger's point about the terminology and the ideas and the way in which these ideas are ones that require a lot more thought, a lot more discussion is important because elections are not simply decided by people voting with their pocketbook. Elections are also issues of ideas. And at the present moment, unfortunately, we are less successful at disseminating our ideas, at articulating them, than our opponents. And we've got to really change that because I don't, I mean, I agree with you in this sense of urgency. I don't think there will necessarily be that many elections left that will make a big difference. Thank, thanks for that. What we'll now we'll move over to Tim Congdon. What we'll actually have, we'll, he will have his paper, and then then we'll have a break, and then there'll be time for discussion and questions on the paper. So Tim will tell us on why intellectuals hate capitalism. Tim. Okay. Um, <coughs> well, thank you very much. And can I first of all just um, thank the new Criterion and the Social Affairs Unit for asking me to come to New York uh, to give this paper. Uh, um, I was going to be very impressed by the um, endurance of a new York audience, but I'm very pleased to hear that there's going to be a break after my talk. So, um, Now, my, my talk is called um, The Paradox of the Intellectuals and the Future of Capitalism. I'm going to have five parts. I'm going, first of all, to define what I mean by the paradox of the intellectuals, and then secondly, going to make some comments on that paradox. Um, some um, thinkers... Uh, who, by the way, this paradox has been noticed many times before. Um, some thinkers believed that this paradox would lead to the downfall of capitalism, and I'm going to talk about them. Uh, the, 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 probably the most well-known one is this chap, um, Schumpeter, in a book called Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy, which I'll refer to a bit, which I hope will cheer us up, by the way, when I refer to it. Um, and then, fourthly, I'm going to... Um, ask, why have these people been wrong? Because, again, despite the current sort of mood around the, uh, the Roman in the panel, um, capitalism has been very resilient uh, and uh, very successful uh, since Schumpeter and others wrote. 
uh, and despite the mood around the table. Um, and I'm finally going to say that despite that, um, the paradox of the intellectual's, intellectual's adversarial attitude towards capitalism remains a threat to it, and I'm going to illustrate it with some recent examples. Okay, so first of all, what do I mean by, by the paradox of the intellectuals? Well, the word intelligentsia, and then the associated word of in, in, intellectuals, um, where do they come from? According to Daniel Bell, and I suppose you knew what you're talking about, the, the, the word actually comes from a minor novelist, Russian novelist, first used in the 1860s, a chap called Bobarykin. Apparently, although gets, I may be open to correction, Bobarik is a Russian word which means to babble endlessly. Um, anyway, and the word intellectual arose in France during the Dreyfus trial. Okay, so they're relatively recent words. They refer to the intellect, intelligence. Does that mean the intelligentsia consists of the most intelligent people in a society? Well, I don't know. Um, is the intelligentsia more intelligent than on average? Probably yes whatever the intelligence the intellectuals are. What one also notices about this group, and uh, a lot of questions about definition, but um, is that they tend to oppose, and in the capitalist society, they tend to oppose capitalism. So in a phrase, the intelligentsia is left-wing. Now, as I said, this observation isn't new. There been, it's been noticed many, many times before. Um, it's noticed in um, Hayek and several essays. Uh, Stigler um, had a, a paper called The Intellectual in the Marketplace. The Intellectual didn't like the marketplace. Um, you had um, um, a whole mass of people, like Schumpeter, Daniel Bell, and so on. Richard Posner had a book on public intellectuals that came out in um, 2001. And um, uh, by the way, the book was called Public Intellectuals, A Study in Decline. And um, he quantified this pattern. He quantified the pattern for uh, intellectuals to be left-wing in a more or less formal theory of the phenomenon. Uh, he even discussed equilibrium conditions and put down some symbols, and he rounded all off with some multiple regressions. Anyhow, um, according to, to Posner, 65% of publications, <laughs> I'm going to use this phrase, weighted by volume. This is a publication, publications that you'd had a look at are left-leaning. And he said this two-thirds preponderance um, of, of the primary left-leading public intellectual suggests that the market for public intellectual work is primarily a left-wing market. And that's consistent with one's general, general impressions of this group. Um, again, this goes back a long way. Uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, Conservatives, the Stupid Party. Um, uh, George Orwell, um, the intelligentsia take their cookery from Paris and their ideas from Moscow. Um, so they're not new in suggesting that there is this, they tend to be left-wing. And the paradox is, of course, that um, I don't need to labor that, I hope, in the present audience. Of course, um, market capitalism is the best way of organizing an economy. Um, market capitalism, which uh, rests on the rule of law, enforcement of private property rights, and so on, is undoubtedly the best way of organizing the economy. Uh, evidence is overwhelming. And so you have this paradox that the group which purports to be the most intelligent, 
in a capitalist society is also that with the silliest attitudes towards it. And that is the paradox I'm talking about. As I say, I'm not the first person to notice that there is a paradox of this sort, um, but actually it undoubtedly is there. Now, I just want to make a few comments about this paradox. Um, and um, the, um, that will then lead on to my more uh, remarks about does it really threaten capitalism? And um, other things to say. I think, first of all, in terms of the disciplines where um, this paradox has become most evident over the decades, um, on the whole, um, it isn't so obvious in, uh, if you like, um, well, scientific. Um, where, where there's some number, numbers involved, uh, science, physics, mathematics, engineering, um, on the whole, the intelligent people, I mean, how would you use this phrase, they don't tend to be so obviously left-wing. You can discuss that. And, um, and I would say, and again, I'm open for a debate about this, but obviously uh, I can do critical language, that on the whole, I would say that in the last 20, 30 years, it's tended to be, certainly sociology, some of the related... Um, it's English, English departments, ironically, which have become the, um, the centre of um, these sort of left-wing intellectual trends. And um, <clears throat> I, I was reading some Richard Rorty on deconstruction. This actually is what he himself says. Deconstruction connotes a project of radical destabilisation. The teaching of this kind of philosophy is almost always associated with, with attacks on the ways in which English departments have traditionally thought of their function and with self-conscious and systematic attempts to politicise that function. That is, that is Rorty on, re, on deconstruction. And this set of ideas is not defined by anything positive. It is defined by its negative attitude towards the state, towards the number of... It's a, a most extraordinary sort of... Um, there is then the question about uh, quite why you know, that is so, that, that kind of the scientific numerate disciplines that tend to have less of these people and the, um, you know, the, 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 the wordy um, had, tend to have more of them. Um, I don't know. That's, you know. That's one thing I'd make, comment I'd make about the, the intellectual class. The other thing that tends to emerge, and there are, and this is not, when I, say, I get these generalizations, they are tending to be supported by anybody who does any kind of, as Posner did, he actually tried to quantify it all, that it tends to be the intelligentsia in the universities, um, in particular, who tend to be left-wing. I, when I say left-wing, I, it's a shorthand, but you know what I mean. Um, and so there are um, intellectuals in the media, there are intellectuals in think tanks, there are intellectuals in the universities, and it tends to be the universities who are left-wing. And I would attribute this to sort of part, one reason I'd give is distance from reality, a distance from market pressure, distance from a, a compunction, you know, a requirement that you actually sell yourself to some extent. Um, and so... Um, they often, academics now don't have very high income, so this combination of they're clever, they're far from the market, they're rather poor, um, and they don't have the pleasure, the very deep psychic pleasure that people in business have of actually building up 
something that is valuable, having their own... Uh, they, the academics don't have this, and I therefore would explain part of their negativeness by, by, that, by that aspect of, of, what, of, of, of their... Um, and one of the concepts that they don't have this requirement to sell, to actually to market. And what tends to happen instead is that they get justification from citation of their work. And you get these spirals of citation within a group. So they get groupthink. And the ever-increasing de- ever detachment from reality. And I'm going to talk about this when I talk about um, the current financial crisis at the end. It's less true in journalism. Um, and so, and of course, we, we had um, Zocal and the hoax as, as a sort of final, you know, this went too far. I mean, it just, it just got absurd. The people carried away with long, complicated sentences, daft symbolization, abstraction, all the rest of it. And of course, in fact, a lot of them is, is just rubbish. Um, I gather even in physics, Lee Smolin's written this book on the trouble with physics, string theory has the same kinds of problems, so I gather, that actually it isn't clear string theory has any meaningful content, um, but actually it is now the dominant part of academic physics. Um, okay, so that's one thing. And then finally I wanted to say about comments on these um, public intellectuals that um, it's often been noticed that the, the old, again, the older uh, people are, the older intellectuals are, um, the less antagonistic they are to the system. Um, and I would explain this, again, to some extent, by exposure to reality and experience, um, um, and um, in, in, in the context of America, this actually been the American intelligence is very important, um, Hilton Kramer himself said that the neoconservative movement was itself the creation of ex-radicals and ex-liberals. Um, and so as people get older, they tend to... Um, um, Nozick actually had a rather nice image here that he said that many intellectuals see society image of the classroom. And in the classroom, because they were clever, um, they did very well, and they saw the state as a kind of teacher. And, uh, okay, so... Um, now, so there's a various things to say about this group, which... Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's very odd, isn't it, that, um, you know, the kind of battles that all of, the peop- all of us here go through, uh, you know, we all have battles where we, I mean, just think about ideological policing, you know, that, that some academics can't say certain things because they're in institutions where certain things are not supposed to be said, you know, and it's, it is the, left, the left-wing dominance of institutions, the paradox of clever people having very silly ideas. Now, um, the, I want to just talk for a bit about third part of my talk about the implications of this paradox for the uh, uh, durability of capitalism. The, this tendency for the cleverest groups, the, the intelligentsia, to have rather silly attitudes towards the system, um, was noticed um, in the particularly in the 1930s when you had some. Uh, sort of academics, uh, who, who, who could see what was going on in universities. It was the time of um, the Great Depression, the time of the rise um, of fascism and communism in Europe. And fascism and communism, communism in particular, um, appealed uh, to uh, uh, young, clever people. Um, and um, they said that these tendencies... Uh, in particular, this book here uh, uh, by Schumpeter, that actually it would lead to the end of capitalism. There was a rather similar analysis by Daniel Bell um, 
not, not quite so extreme, and it, in my view, much better expressed, actually, but in The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, uh, 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 which was a much, uh, I think it was the 1980s, was the 1970s, I forget now. Um, most of the other people who've written about this paradox, the intellectuals, haven't drawn such sharp conclusions um, about the, the, the likely uh, fall of capitalism before this antagonistic group. You know, you've had trilling, adversary culture, Hayek and so on, but they don't actually say it's likely to lead, lead to the end of capitalism. So I'm just going to concentrate for a few minutes um, on Schumpeter, um, and I want, I think what I will do in some extent is give you a bit of reassurance that these debates go round and round, and I don't think actually we're at a particularly grim moment at the moment, just, just at present, frankly. Um, this book was, was, uh, was written in the early 1940s, and the first edition was published in 1942. <laughs> I'm going to read you um, what um, Schumpeter said in the prologue. The last 20 years, this, by the way, was a chap came from Vienna. He was Austrian. He was not in any sense antagonistic to capitalism. He believed in, in, in the market and competition. The last 20 years have witnessed a most interesting Marxist, Marxian revival. And then he talks about Russia. In a, in a surprisingly uncritical way. The next paragraph, he says, that another revival is less easy to explain, the Marxian revival in the United States. This phenomenon is so interesting, because until the 20s, there was no Marxian, trend, Marxian strain of importance in either the American labor move, move, movement or in the thought of the American intellectual. <laughs> this is you know, quite a clever man, said that in... Wrote, wrote like that early 1940s. And what he also said, um, this is the, the start of his uh, the, the, the analysis proper, can capitalism survive? No, I do not think it can. Um, he did actually precede the argument um, in um, something he, uh, a talk he gave just before his death. Um, and um, that there were four um, elements um, in that, um, uh, four reasons that he gave for the, uh, uh, the fall of capitalism. Um, I must say, actually, looking back, this actually is not a very good book. Um, this actually is a... I mean, it, it, had, it had its day, and um, it actually, it's a pretty bad... It, it's, it's a good, bad book, um, it's difficult to read, but some of it's so silly. But we, only we know that it's silly. They didn't know then. All right. Um, he says that, um, first of all, the business class has uh, evolved into a managerial bureaucracy, and therefore, you know, it's the business class, the entrepreneur, that really drives capitalism. Uh, instead, it's become a bureaucracy, and so there's no longer the same uh, kind of... Um, he says the rationality of capitalism is being undermined um, as uh, uh, um, more and more people become unthinking subordinates. I mean, I find all this it's rather weak, frankly. The only bit, the, 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 the last two bits kind of ring true. And he says, you get, in a, in a capitalist society, increased specialization. You get a business class, and that's separated off from the intellectual class. And the intellectual class um, develops, developed an attitude of independence from and eventually of hostility to the interest of large-scale business business increasingly incapable of defending itself against raids that are, in the short term, highly profitable to other classes. Just been through one of those, of course, but they'll talk about that more at the end. 
and then he is, because of three, because of this, 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 this point, the values of the capitalist society, although very important to its success, are losing their hold upon the public mind. Um, and um, uh, this is very much in line with what we've just been talking about. There are these modern drives for security, equality, and regulation. And, and those parts of, of, of Schumpeter's argument do ring true today. Now, Schumpeter was wrong. Um, we still have a capitalist system. Um, uh, uh, as Daniel pointed out, the major alternative collapsed um, in the late 1980s and 1991. And um, in that sense, uh, uh, capitalism defeated um, uh, uh, socialism, and Schumpeter was just completely wrong. And uh, let's just make it clear that's what, that's what happened. Um, I want now just to... I'm not going to talk about... And the fundamental reason why, why, why capitalism has succeeded and communism and socialism failed was just that capitalism was a better system um, and that, that uh, a system in which uh, property is privately owned, it's dispersed, where... The rights of property owners are defined under law, where disputes are settled in law courts, and so on. That is a far better system than communism, socialism, whatever. And there's a whole lot of, of drivel, frankly, it's just drivel in here, about how socialism can work. Um, it's just wrong. They were wrong. Um, and um, so we have a capitalist system. Even President Obama doesn't say he's in favor. He says he's in favor of a free market economy. That isn't... That's one. That, at least it's one for a bit, in a sense. I believe these things come and go a bit. So. But I also want to raise some questions about whether a capitalist society actually has some checks to the paradox of the, of the, of the intellectuals and the, um, the damage that they do. And I want to make a couple of points, really, to some extent, which may be rather flattering to the present company, but still... Um, the, the first point is that um, the, intellectu the intellectual people, people who worry about these things, do have other ways of getting back, even if they're kicked out of universities, and that is the importance of think tanks. Um, the, um, what has been happening, in a way, in the intellectual class, certainly in North America, and to some extent in Britain, I'm not, not so much true. Well, I, I was in Switzerland, actually, uh, a few weeks ago, and it's certainly happening there, that actually the, um, the think tanks tend to be uh, pro-free market, pro uh, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the law, the uh, uh, um, liberal democracy, and so on, whereas the universities tend to be where the... Um, the left congregates. The, there's an obvious reason for that, which is a think tank must be relevant, depends on funding normally on a fairly continuous basis, and so they, to some extent think tanks have to sell themselves. Um, they depend on largely private money. They don't get money from the state. Um, and the Schumpeter and Daniel Bell didn't really envisage the role of think tanks. This is something that wasn't really foreseen in the 1940s and 1950s. It's come in as a, in a very important counterweight to the left in the universities. Um, and Krugman's book, The Conscience of a Liberal, he abominates the think tanks. He doesn't like them, and that just shows you how important they have become. 
The, the other uh, result is, is that we've had um, um, the non-university intellectual, uh, the, the, the intellectual who, now, um, if you go back to Britain in the 19th century, typically you had the gentleman scholar. A lot of historians were, were, were of private means. Um, they could, they didn't have to worry about money. Um, they um, wrote, uh, they got involved in, in histories. Of course, Charles Darwin, in a sense, was just, just like this, so it was a private fortune, and um, just was interested in the subject, and just wrote them up. And they weren't interested in, in um, uh, the, the changing society. They just wanted to, to get the truth. Um, and the, um, the, 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 certainly in America, you've got, there's a big enough, um, <coughs> excuse the expression, um, a bourgeois market. I mean, a, there's a big enough middle class that will pay for the productions of right-wing intellectuals that you actually get um, the right-wing intellectual as a valid career. Um, and so this is a very important counterweight to the, um, uh, uh, the, the university uh, intellectuals who tend to be very left-wing. Um, and actually, Daniel Bell, in one of his books, um, has a long analysis of the New York intellectuals. I think there are things to say here about, about American history, but, but I, I mean, you, know, I, you, you tell me more, really. I mean, I think, I think the, the, um, um, to some extent, you had this period, as Schumpeter said, from kind of the early 30s through to the early 50s, when there were lots of socialists <coughs> in America, and then they hit the brick wall of, you know, Whitaker Chambers, McCarthy, uh, and so on. And um, so, although um, the, the um, and that is something which perhaps is kind of just about America, and, and the final point I would make here is that um, the, what again, kind of Schumpeter and actually Daniel Bell didn't notice is that um, the media may be owned by capitalists, all right? So, um, you've got, um, rather obviously, Ruth Murdoch, who essentially is a conservative, um, who will uh, sponsor uh, um, uh, right-wing uh, newspapers and so on, and um, maybe the rather unfortunate case of Conrad Black. But may I just say at the moment in my country, we have an appalling counterexample, which is um, the Pearson Group and the Financial Times, which I've actually been horrified by. We have the Financial Times, which is probably the most influential a financial newspaper in Europe. I, I wouldn't say in the world, of course. I wouldn't upset the readers of the Wall Street Journal. But um, we have this newspaper, which, in my opinion, in the, in the crisis we've just been through, has adopted a position which is profoundly anti-capitalist, profoundly against the interests of its readers. And by the way, I've been more and more pleased in the last few weeks by the number of readers of the FT I've talked to are fed up with it. Um, okay. So um, the... There is this paradox of intellectuals. Um, the um, nevertheless, capitalism is very resilient. Uh, there have been counter pressures, counter forces that have meant there are uh, powerful right-wing intellectual groups um, in capitalism to, to counter um, the left wing. On the other hand, we've just been through, well, going through um, a particularly difficult period for the capitalist system, and I want just now my last few minutes to discuss ways in which the on the whole, the predominantly left-wing stance of the intellectuals has influenced the, the crisis. The first thing I'd like to say is that um, my, my, main, my, my, my main job is I'm a monetary economist, um, a commentator on financial markets. Um, and um, 
I look at money very carefully. So I have a great admiration for the work of Milton Friedman. And um, now what Friedman showed in, the, uh, in his book, Monetary the United States, was that the dominant causal influence um, on the Great Depression was the about 35%, maybe getting on to 40% fall, and the quantity of money, essentially bank deposits, um, between 1929 and 1933, October 29 to March 33, I don't know if it's going to be a revelation to you all here, but um, you go to the Federal Reserve and go to the research departments, they don't want you to talk about money. You go to the IMF and you go to the research, they don't talk about money. And you, you can read um, a, um, uh, an analysis, say, in the IMF's last um, chap called Olivier Blanchard. And I actually I did this. This International Monetary Fund will this chap in his 1,500 words, 2,000 words, ever mention the word money? No. He referred to credit, liquidity, and so on. The, the academics have an allergy to talking about the quantity of money. What the hell is going on here? Um, it's all very odd. It's all very curious. Um, I would say it's got a lot to do with the fact that Friedman obviously was a kind of champion of the right, and so um, if you refer to money, monetarism and so on, you're immediately regarded as a villain in university economics departments. This is spread to the Federal Reserve, and that explains what's going on. Now, can I just, before I move on to my next point, say this is very, very important understanding what is currently happening around the world. What economists, instead of doing, is saying, following you know, the zeitgeist, the sort of the, um, we must make banks safe. So banks must have more capital relative to their assets. So banks must get rid of their low-quality assets. They must shrink their balance sheets. And, of course, President Obama has said shrinkage of the financial system. Please, you shrink the financial system. You destroy money. You get back to the Great Depression. The Great Depression was all about a fall in the quantity of money of almost 40%. The last three months, the United States, the quantity of money has actually gone down. Another aspect of, of this is that there's been uh, indifference to property rights in the current crisis. Um, I'm running out of time, so I won't go into it all, but I, I was involved in Britain with the uh, Northern Rock Affair, and it's very clear that... Um, the media wanted to, particularly the Financial Times, wanted to ignore very important distinctions between um, a problem, a solvency problem in a bank, a liquidity problem, the distinctions between loan, equity, grant, all sorts of things that, um, you know, if you've got any knowledge of corporate finance, are very straightforward things. And basically, they want to say the banks took government money and therefore the banks should be punished. That was what was going on. One has to say that to some extent the critics of capitalism have got they're hitting capitalism at one of its weakest points because I think it's true to say that 
the theorizing about the best structure of the financial system in, um, if you will, right-wing circles has been very low quality. Um, and, um, for example, um, Chicago School, um, some uh, articles, indeed Friedman at some points advocated 100% cash reserve ratios, which basically would destroy banking. Uh, the Austrian School was associated with the idea of denationalizing money. I don't know if any people here probably will get, get some bricks thrown at me. As far as I'm concerned, denationalizing money is a bombing idea. Um, the, uh, it is very important that we sort out how the financial system should be structured, what the relationship between the government and central bank should be, the relationship between central bank and commercial banking systems. We must not let this ruin capitalism again. So that, that's one of the... Um, in Britain, we have and just had um, uh, Mr. Adair Turner, who's the equivalent of the head of the SEC, is head of our Financial Services Authority, who has described large parts of what happened in the financial system as socially useless. Britain's exports of uh, financial services are about 4% of its national income. This is the one activity in which Britain, until now, has been very good. By the way, this is not domestic. These are services sold to companies around the world. And this character, our equivalent of the head of the SEC, says they are socially useless. Can you imagine that? The industry is responsible for 4% of, of national output in exports, socially useless. Of course, what Turner's phrases recall and here I'll come back to, uh, is actually, there's a long tradition uh, on the left of saying that we don't need money, you know, um, Marx in the final, I think there's no money in the final paradise of, of communism. Um, and, um, well, there are religions, aren't there, that actually pour score on, on money and paying interest and usury. Um, and um, so the, these debates about... Um, you know, they all have got very long roots, and um, it's, I think, very important for us to, to try and um, defend um, the right things. Um, anyway, I'm going to finish by saying, I'm going to get a literary quote in, I think I might have to do that in the present company, that um, Virginia Woolf, I think, said that um, human nature changed in December 1910, if I got the date right, and... Um, so did capitalism come to an end on August the 9th, 2007? Well, I don't think so, and um, we've been through much worse times, um, but um, nevertheless, um, somehow we must try and battle against these left-wing intellectuals and hope that the paradox of intellectuals doesn't lead to the downfall of capitalism. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Lewis. Thanks. Thanks. I wonder if I, I can uh, talk about the paradox yeah, of the not, paradox. Is that not possible? now? Just not now. Th th thanks for that. Uh, the, I'm sure there'll be lots of lots of thoughts on that paper. The just on the think tank point, I wouldn't be quite as sanguine as you can read in the October issue of Standpoints. Think tanks are increasingly getting state funding in the UK, so there's an yeah, inc increasing right. rise of left-wing think tanks. 